Hello everyone and welcome to the EVN Disrupt podcast. My name is Nijda Tsaturgyan. I'm the editor of the creative tech section here at EVN Report. My guest today was Zaga Zugabian, the head of the Americans division of eLab Next, a European biotech company. We discussed the biotech ecosystem, exciting trends in the industry, and the evolution of biotech startups. Thank you for listening. Zaga, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Zaga, let's start with a little bit of your background. Uh, how did you get involved in the biotech scene? Sure. So uh, my background is biochemistry and meth. Um, I've always had uh, interest in science of anything. You know, I, I looked at food and I wondered what are the elements of, of this bread that I'm eating or this cucumber that I'm eating. You know, whatever it was, I kind of always wanted to get to the very bottom of, of what that is. Um, so because I had this interest, I went to, to college to, to pursue that. Um, I did biochemistry and math. And uh, when I graduated, I, I started doing research in, in biofuels and bioenergy, working with anaerobic bacteria. And as I was doing this research, uh, maybe two, three months into working there, the lab manager uh, left the company. And it was around a 100-person lab. And me being an ambitious young graduate, you know, I said, hey, I'll be the lab manager. Right. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, let this kid have fun until we hire an actual real uh, yeah. uh, lab manager. Luckily, I had a background in uh, managing the whole science building at my college, at Regis College. So I, I took on the job in a very short period of time. I started doing very well, uh, building a lot of great relationships uh, with, uh, uh, with our vendors and, and, and different people and started doing projects that were, I was spending about $1 million a week on the whole scale up of, mm -hmm. of our bioreactors. And this little transition, this transformation that I had from doing research to being more focused on business management of things yeah. helped me or, or, or planted the seeds for me to transition from research to more uh, business development, role. operations, yeah. and, and, and business growth. I'm curious about how you made that decision to to transition because I think a lot of people from STEM backgrounds, both whether they're engineers or they're in a mm -hmm. more like research scientist role in a lab, Sometimes when they have to make that shift to something that's on the business side or even just sort of a managerial type position, they fear that they're going to be left behind from the from the actual like development of the tech and right. the advancement of the science and stuff. Do you have any fears like that or was it a really natural feeling for you? Of to, course to I had forward? fears. Of course I had fears. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a big move that you're doing. Yeah. I even took a pay cut in the beginning. So your, your quality of life also might go down for a period of time. But you have to think about what's uh, what is your goal, not right. just uh, tomorrow, but uh, three years from now, five years from right. now, ten years from now. And when you have that vision and you believe in yourself and you know what you like and what you don't like, then uh, you you take the steps to to do that. So one of the things that I tell uh, you know younger folk in the industry is that you have to pay your dues in, yeah. in what you're doing, and that's the mindset that I had. Uh, I have a Im immigrant mindset in, in in U.S., and I know that I have to work my way up to to different positions and and different things. And the mindset was okay. I need to make a transition to to business, and I don't have a business background. I only have business acumen. I understand yeah. it. I I enjoy it but I do not have a certificate, I don't have a degree, yeah. so what do I do? And uh, it was a very 
kind of strategic uh, uh, move, and, and I went, I got a certificate that planted the, the seed and, and gave me some credibility for now companies to look at me. Then I started taking classes at Harvard in, in business management. That gave me more credibility, and, and little by little, I was able to build my confidence, right. build my, my knowledge, and be recognized by the industry in a way that now I'm not the one that's reaching out to be hired. Now right. they're reaching out to me to, they're to hire recruiting me. You. Right. Yeah. And, and and this is something that you know uh, for any of the listeners to to kind of uh, to think about is nothing comes in in one day. If you have a vision, if you enjoy something, if you like right. something, then work. You know, have a game plan and, and 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 work towards it. And that's how I did it. Right. Rome wasn't built in a day. Right. As I like to say in Armenia, Moscow wasn't built in a day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. So let's explore the biotech scene a little bit today. Um, sure. Biotech is a topic that is much. Uh, we hear about it a lot more in, in the news today than I think we did maybe five or ten years ago. How do you evaluate the bio the biotech scene today, and what are the different sort of sub-industries in it that we should sure, be following? Sure, yeah. So uh, the biotech scene, well, uh, first of all, I'm in Boston right now. Right. And Boston is the Which biotech is like the hub. Of right, biotech. it's the biotech hub of the world. You know, uh, all of the universities that are there, they uh, spin out a lot of companies, uh, Harvard, the Harvards, the MITs, uh, and, and, and so on. You know, there's biotech companies that are, you know, startups uh, from incubators like Lab Central, Biolabs, Smart Labs, and all these places. They will have anywhere from two people all the way to a couple of hundred people. Yeah. Then there's the pharma industry, the big pharma, uh, you know, the Pfizer's and Novartis's and Sanofi's of the world. Then there's a lot of healthcare, you know, hospitals that will have their laboratories, um, government labs like CDC and, and, and so on. And, and all of these labs, they do series of different operations. These are wet labs. These are wet labs, yeah. yes. I mean, even even labs that do physics uh, and, and working with conductors and so on, we, we they are still a customer of ours. We, we'd still look at them as a wet lab, even though there's nothing wet in there. Right. But essentially, all of these uh, these labs are either doing research, they're either doing diagnostics, they're doing process and development until they get to uh, a, a maturation that allows them to do production of whatever they're doing. And then from that point on, they will have both the research arm uh, of the company and then the company and, and, and the arm of the company that does the, the production of whatever they're working on, whether it be a device, whether right. it be a drug, uh, a service, uh, some kind of a therapeutic service or, you know, uh, whatever. So to your question, as far as kind of what the scene is like, yeah, very competitive, very innovation driven. And uh, the reason why I mentioned that is because there are certain companies that uh, might have an amazing product. Uh, they might be, you know, they might be successful on, yeah. a, on a smaller level. Uh, but because the competition is so strong and the way that some of the things get uh, pushed to the front of the of the industry, a lot of other great companies might fall back even though they have a better solution or, or, or something like that. So it's interesting seeing how all of these things play out. Mm -hmm. And I am lucky that uh, the nature of my job is I'm in the forefront of all of these companies and I work with all of them because of the product that we provide. And um, I get to see firsthand how these companies battle through the competition to get to the top and, right. and, and be able to be recognized for their innovations. Right. So let's take a look at the biotech sort of life cycle. Um, you have traditional wet labs, which are typically in 
either government research institutions or universities and, and things like that. Mm. And then you have a biotech layer, I guess, which is companies that build services to or build tech technologies mm -hmm. that wet labs use in order to accelerate their research. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way of, of understanding? Sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So what are some examples of sort of biotech products that we may even be interacting with or are used in some products that we interact with that we don't know about? Sure. Uh, one quick distinction I would make is that when we say biotech, it can be both the company that provides products to right. the research lab also, uh, the actual research lab itself is part of the biotech industry. So the biotech companies themselves could have labs? Yes, but okay, so uh, let, let me give you an example. Um, let's say Moderna. Yeah. Uh, that's a biotech company. Right. Uh, but Appendorf is also a biotech company that provided centrifuges, pipettes, and, right. and, and, and you know automation products to Moderna in order for them to be able to create the vaccine. Right. So both are part of the biotech industry, but one provides the devices to the other that provides the therapeutics. These are all part of the same kind of uh, industry. There's not really a distinction, like a terminology distinction Got in it. the industry. Everybody just says, okay, it's just biotech. Right. Um, so can you remind me your, your question again? Yeah, Sorry. I, was just, I was just curious about how all that fits into sort of the biotech life cycle. Like okay, what each, okay, uh, yes. Ro so the what the role of each player is, yeah. Yeah, so it's actually very interesting because uh, the speed at which these companies uh, uh, become successful or... Yeah. or it, it has changed uh, dramatically uh, before it would take, uh, you know, uh, several years. Now, within a year, it can really go big. Yeah. Um, I have customers that when they start out with us, it's, you know, two people. And then by the end of the year, they have 100 people within the company. Right. Some of it, I, I think it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when you hire so many people in a short period of time, you don't develop tribal knowledge. Yeah. There's a lot of you know chaos internally, yeah. and you're not building an infrastructure, but you're kind of just throwing money at, at a company right. trying to go big. And But, I mean, a lot of companies work that way, and then, and then they're able to stabilize. But anyways, there is uh, a lot of incubators, uh, in, especially in Boston. Just to name a few, you know, there's Lab Central, there's BioLabs, Smart Labs. There, you know, Johnson and Johnson has incubator spaces. Uh, Nestle Health Sciences has incubator spaces, and that's kind of a place where you incubate these startups with few people who are yeah. doing their their research in in RMIR flasks and you know small scale. Uh, they generate a lot of data. They maybe work with a CRO to do the, some of the analysis, so they don't have to do it in house. What's a CRO? Contract research organization. Okay. CROs can be in different formats. It can be the labs that, um, you know, they have the mice, they have the rabbits, yeah. and you send them your product and they test it out on them and they give you the results. But then it, there can be CROs that do the actual data analysis. Mm -hmm. You generate the data, you send it over to them, and then they do the analysis for you instead right. of doing it internally. So all of these incubators are are really this amazing atmosphere because everyone has something really cool that they're building. Um, they're all passionate. Uh, yeah. Some are, you know, came from academia. Some came from other big pharma. And uh, they all come together under one roof 
with a lot of coffee and a lot of uh, beers on, on yeah. Fridays. And they work together and they try to figure out, you know, the, the next big uh, uh, yeah. ther uh, therapy that they're working on. Mm. Usually, on average, it's about three years until they graduate. For example, Lab Central, they have a limit and it's 18 months. If you don't have, uh, you know, your Some hypothesis, if you don't mm. have your product, you're out. Right. Um, other places, it's, hey, as long as you pay us, you can remain in this incubator space. Mm. Some incubators will provide you with a lot of guidance, mentorship, yeah. and in potential investors. Yeah. Others will not. You know, it, it all depends yeah. on, on the circumstance. But on average, it's about three years. Uh, these companies uh, go from few people to maybe 20, 25. Yeah. And then this is when you could consider them somewhat of a mid-level, mature biotech company that now go in, onto their own and then... For the next three years, you see this big boom yeah. from 25 people to a couple of hundred. And that's the general life cycle that, uh, that yeah. we notice. A lot of companies fail and, you know, they get a lot of funding in the beginning. And if they don't uh, manage their funding right, they end up buying all these expensive yeah. instrumentation. And the next thing you know, <laughs> you know, they, they don't have a product. They yeah. don't have something. Some will work on you know, a particular, not to name the name of the company, but a particular company was working on, I forget exactly what it was in the beginning, but during COVID, they switched over their formulation and they started working on long COVID uh, mm. symptom. Diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, no, not, not diagnostics. Mm. Actual, you know, those noon uh, electrolyte, uh, mm. you know, like things that you just throw in the water, it fizzles like okay. a vitamin. They developed something like that for long COVID treatment. Really? Yes. Mm. And, and they did it like this in just... Yeah. In, in, in the heat of the moment, they were yeah. able to transition. So you see this a lot in the, yeah. in the scene as well. When you were explaining the, the role of those accelerators and those incubators, it really highlights for me the importance of universities in a startup ecosystem, and especially for a biotech ecosystem, right. or really deep tech startup ecosystems in general, because you can get together a few engineers and some, some new grads who are really enthusiastic about working on this problem, but if you don't have that, that deep expertise within your ecosystem to guide you and, and mentor you on getting your product to market, it's super difficult. Right. Um, and we'll get to Armenia's ecosystem mm. soon, but it really highlights how important it is to develop the universities in, a, uh, in Armenia to the point where they can provide that level of... Uh, expertise for for our startup ecosystem. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and, and you know, again, Boston. I'm sure, it's no. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, it's no accident that Boston is a biotech hub. Exactly. Yeah, Harvard, MIT, BU, and all exactly. All There's a school in every five mile exactly. radius, <laughs> and you know, they, they they have a lot of funding. They're able to afford all of these amazing yeah. instrumentation. You know, a couple of mass specs, uh, yeah. uh, HPLCs, and a flow cytometer can yeah. easily be five to ten million dollars. Right. You can't help but to learn from uh, just being in those labs right um, and uh, as you're doing your you know daily routine in the in, in the lab yeah. pipetting and doing all these things you start developing new ideas you start developing new thoughts you notice that hey actually I can do the same thing way faster yeah. if I had a gadget like this and you have an engineering background next thing you know you're teaming up with someone from MIT and you're building a new gadget yeah and you know these people get easily funneled 
to all of these big pharma companies and biotech companies right. and, and you're seeing this happening right. uh, actively day yeah. in and day out yeah you saw the same thing with machine learning five six years ago right um, tell us a little bit about what biotech startups or what type of problems are they working on today it can be anything from rare disease treatment to common disease treatment it, you know the focus is to just make people healthier right and that's the number one focus and when I'm interviewing people when I'm in hiring people on my team including people who are not let's say in sales or marketing even the developers that I'm looking for I really want them to understand what we're doing and what our mission is right. which is we're here to make people healthier we're here to make this world a healthier place yeah. And that's essentially what it what it comes down to. That's what biotech is, what health tech is. You know, it can be something that is of, of great interest, like let's say Alzheimer's, yeah. uh, or it can be something that the founder, you know, was uh, inspired by having someone in the family who passed away from something and they were a scientist. They became a scientist maybe just for that. Right. And now they're trying to find a cure for that particular disease. So we see a full range of these. Uh, labs that are coming out of healthcare institutions yeah. like hospitals, that's a bit different because then, you know, different institutions focus on, on different things. One is, you know, cancer research. Right. One is, you know, uh, something else. And uh, labs out of there have a very specific focus and um, in, in very specific topic. So you will see that as well. Right. Um, more, you know, government agencies, a lot of them are focused on climate change or right. they're focused on overall health of the society. Climate um, change falls under biotech? Yeah. I mean, the, the labs, you know, for example, we have a lab uh, that goes into the rivers and takes samples of salmon mm. and they, they test the salmon and, and they try to see the health how they've changed over the years right. their size their heart their you know all these different things we have labs that are doing expeditions uh, worldwide and they go on you know one month ex expedition into the ocean and they take samples of different kinds of fish over there and then they, they do testing on it or the algae or the coral reefs and, yeah. and, and so on and that's another kind of uh, thing that uh, you know gets makes me happy to go to work because then I know that the, the, the product that I'm providing to these labs right. is directly helping us to understand planet earth right. that's a, that hopefully will impact certain policies that will make us uh, healthier and, and better and safer uh, right. for the years to come for our children and so on. So, you know, there's also, you know, especially uh, during the, the pandemic, it was keeping track of, let's say, all the different demographics, how they are uh, getting sick, what are the symptoms, what are the differences, and uh, being able to find therapeutics based on that. Yeah. We had a lab at um, uh, Harvard and MIT Broad Institute that was doing research on Ebola. So you get to see this very, and that's what, probably one of the things that I really like about, about my job. And to your earlier question about the transition from yeah. uh, research to, uh, to the business side of things, if I stayed in research, I was only going to work on right. uh, anaerobic bacteria, and I would have been a really good microbiologist. Right. But it's very but narrow. It's very narrow. Yeah. And, and I mean, to, to each their own, and nothing wrong with, with doing that. But I now I get to kind of see a wide range of, of different things. You know, I'm not yeah. a specialist in, in uh, you know, microbiology. I'm not a specialist in chemistry, but I have general knowledge that uh, and, and it allows me to uh, dip my toes in different topics and, yeah. and, and kind of just see what's happening in, in, in the world. Right. And you have the sufficient background to be able to keep up with the developments exactly. in each of those Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, to a layman like me, it kind of sounds like 
bio, what we used to just call bio research, I guess, or just the bio industry has just become biotech. Is that kind of a, is that very simple, oversimplified or? Yeah, no, no, that's correct. Uh, That's correct. I mean, we we kind of just referred to this whole industry as biotech. I mean, you can create these sub terms, you know, health tech and and biopharma or just pharma or chem tech and and, and so on. But at this uh, point, um, we're noticing that it's all intertwined. It becomes a very multidisciplinary uh, kind of environment. You know, traditionally, uh, a pharma lab will have their bio team and then they would have their chem team, chemistry team, and then they would exchange data. And because of that, there would be loss of data. um, And and there was a lot of decentralized issues because of that. Uh, Now we're seeing much more collaboration, uh, interdepartmental collaboration. And and because of that physical shift that's happening, now the term, the you know, overarching term that everyone refers to is just say biotech. Yeah. I mean biotech. And that's Do it. things like uh, sort of wearables and stuff that are that give people more personalized data about their health fall under that uh, umbrella as well? Uh, no, and that would probably kind of still be health tech because then. Uh, there isn't really any research right. uh, happening there. So that's the key component. It's right. the more like scientific research right. aspect. Got it. Okay, let's talk about uh, eLab, the company sure. that you work for. What are the problems you guys are trying to solve? Sure. So we are a digital lab platform uh, that houses many different kinds of tools like LIMS or ELN. LIMS stands for Laboratory Information Management System. Yeah. ELN stands for Electronic Lab Notebook. And uh, uh, and all of these tools that we provide essentially helps to optimize the efficiency of the labs, uh, make them more secure, more compliant. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, most importantly, the main key pain point is just efficiency to make right. labs more efficient. You know, for example, let's say you are a lab they takes uh, a sample of blood. Um, you need to, let's say, you know, centrifuge that down, yeah. isolate the DNA, RNA protein. Then you need to do all the different kind of tests to all these different elements. Um, you need to use different kind of equipment to do these tests. Yeah. And, and all of these needs to be uh, noted in, in a compliant way in case if you need to apply to FDA approval right. or, or maybe OSHA comes, uh, a regulatory organization comes over to your lab and says, hey, let me see all of the samples that you have in this freezer and all of the work that has been done to these samples. Yeah. You need to be able to provide th- that information. So we essentially provide this platform that allows yeah. you to do these things. But then on top of that, we, we try to, the reason why we are called a platform is because we create an ecosystem where you do all of these things, where it uh, makes you available to be more AI ready, right. data science ready, data analysis that, yeah. ready, exactly. And and that's the uh, this age, you know, five years ago, I would spend more time educating people on what uh, lab digitization is. Right. Now I spend more time educating people on how to digitize in order for you to start uh, using uh, AI and, and any other solutions or software right. out there for you to uh, analyze your data and get to the results faster 
than we did before. So you guys kind of manage the data pipeline for biotech companies. Exactly. Because unless you have a proper and healthy data pipeline, you you can't actually apply AI solutions to those problems. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, in the industry, uh, there are certain software, we call them data dump software. Mm-hmm. We are not that. Uh, it's not just a platform for you to just dump your data in. It's not in. just collecting data. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it's in a way that you structure it and, it and you also do workflow optimization in the process. You automate certain things. Yeah. And all of these things together then uh, give you, let's say, the end result at the end of the quarter where now you can take that data and maybe use some of the internal tools to analyze or send it out to another company or or give it to your data scientists within your company to do the the further analysis. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a product earlier that kind of sparked my interest, that a, a digital lab notebook. Mm-hmm. What exactly is that? Can you talk about it? Sure. Us? So uh, traditionally, um, well, I mean, this is a very interesting topic because we all have been writing with pen and paper right. our whole lives. We still do. And if you think about it from an evolutionary biology perspective, we've been writing for some of us for thousands of, of years. I was just in Western Armenia and you, I saw all of the engravings on the on, right. the, on the rocks and you know, I think it's something that's in us. We always want to use our hands to... It's uh, intuitive. Yeah. Right. And now we've kind of come and, and, and we're saying, hey, don't do that anymore. Right. Make it digital. <laughs> so, of course, there is a resistance to change and, and all of that. But essentially what an electronic lab notebook is, is it's a notebook, it's a journal that is electronic that has a lot of different tools within it that allows you to harbor the data. Yeah. Uh, you know, for example, we have embedded Excel. Hmm. Uh, we, we have uh, image sections. We have um, text sections yeah. and, and, and the file attachment sections, et cetera. And essentially, you you take note of what you're doing in the lab, how you're doing it, yeah. um, and, and uh, you put your results at, at the bottom of it, usually yeah. traditionally. And, and so on. And you build your, your database, your IP. This is your right. intellectual property um, and you're building that out um, and you don't know how that data might be used in the future uh, where traditionally if it's in notebooks, you know, it's somewhere in the basement and you have, you know, yeah. hundreds of these and it's you, not searchable, it's not it's searchable not, yeah. and, and so on. So yeah. that's essentially what it is. And yeah. One of the things that I'm super interested in in the AI space is AI for scientific discovery. And I think the more and more these labs digitize their workflow processes and start not only recording these digitally, but having some sort of tooling that really does a lot of that scientific work in some digital system, creates opportunities for then machine learning engineers and scientists to come and take that data, the data of how people really do that workflow, and try to build systems that mimic human scientists so once you have all that data of uh of how how a scientist records their data analyzes it what they do with it an ml system could in theory learn from that and try to replicate what a, a human scientist could do but since it's in a computer form you could really accelerate the the pace of scientific discovery by having these systems do a lot of that that grunt work uh, absolutely yeah. and i mean uh, let's look at a direct example um, if you're working with microscopes, yeah. uh, you are developing thousands of images. Uh, some of these microscopes create this thing called Z-Stack mm-hmm. images. 
and that can be you know several terabytes of of, of images yeah traditionally you would have to sit down and use your eyes right. to look through all of these images yeah. and then try to see let's say you know just a very simple thing let's say the tumor growth or yeah. some kind of bacterial colony that you're, uh, you're that you're growing and you're trying yeah. to see a pattern and they can take you days and this is how most of most people yeah. did uh that's how they did it yeah. uh, for the longest time now there are tools out there for example Monica's Prime or Pipsqueak AI yeah. uh and Monica's Prime is from here from right. from from Armenia and you are able to just feed those images annotate and 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 show what you're trying to look for after 20 images or so, this is for, uh, for MP Vision for yeah. Monica's Prime specifically, after 20 images, it has about 98% uh, accuracy. Not to mention that now if you do a couple of thousands of those, uh, it's just going to keep on getting better and better and better. Yeah, um, and now the thing that you were going to spend about three months analyzing, yeah. you're doing it in a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's fascinating. It's exciting. The problem in the industry is that there are a lot of AI tools out there, but they don't have uh, the the history to, to back up exactly. their credibility yeah. Yeah. because not a lot of labs are ready to give their data to an AI tool. Yeah, I think the way that this will start is with things that are not... Uh, related to let's say demographics and and so on right. it, because then you're going into the ethical questions and so on and people are kind of scared of that it'll be more generic it things. will be very generic yeah. things and we will start building some success stories yeah. and so on until people uh feel more comfortable into giving their data to these amazing tools yeah. that are out there yeah i think a lot of that early success might come from large tech players like the googles of the world who are financially interested in proving that this works like I know Google does a lot of stuff with quantum chemistry. Um, I think they did some early drug discovery mm -hmm. stuff before a bunch of startups and stuff popping, started popping up. Do you think some of those early successes in terms of really doing something from uh, from zero to one will come from, from startups or will they come from more established players? Or even universities, maybe. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's, Before uh, that trust is built. It, it's it's going to be all of the above until the the culture yeah. and, and the approach is already at that level. Defined. Yeah. Is defined, yes, because uh, I know of large pharma companies that are yeah. already implementing AI tools, right. but there's always the human component that is managing it and, and so on. It's not like a complete trust in, right. in AI analysis. Uh, we know a lot of labs, biotech startups that, you know, five or 10 people that have now their bioinformatician coding uh, an, an AI tool that will be an in-house analysis right. of their own uh, data that they collect. Right. Not like, for example, with that, they, there is more trust uh, in, in that and, and it, this can help to shift culture. Whereas if you're a big pharma company, you're most likely outsourcing it or you're buying off right. another AI company and, and, and it making it part of your, your big ecosystem. Yeah. But if it's being built from ground up yeah. with the startup mentality, then this will be a bit more trusted and, and it will shift culture in my opinion so i think it's the combination of all of these things happening at once until you know now uh, for example we see all of the new startups biotech startups they have a bioinformatics team yeah. right from the beginning whereas before they would be hired after a couple of years of yeah. developing data Right. Now is right from the beginning, so they can help to uh, define the digital strategy of the, yeah. of the lab. And, I mean, this is a huge transition in the industry. I yeah. mean, it's very it's a very new development. 
And five years from now, this is how uh, people in college will be trained. This is the mindset that they will be in. And I think at that point, it's just going to be a common uh, scenario. Right. Okay, I want to get to the, the Armenian ecosystem. But before that, I'm curious a little bit about sort of the economics of uh, biotech companies. So it makes sense to me how sort of biotech service providers and those types of companies make money. But I often see companies with a lot of financing uh, who are you know, narrowly focused on finding the cure for you know, some disease, right? Like I'm sure there are biotech companies working on Alzheimer's or mm-hmm. other neurodegenerative diseases. How does a company like that, because I mean, that's like maybe a 20-year bet um, and maybe it won't even work out. How does a company like that sustain itself financially until it gets until it brings some therapeutic to market is it just by constantly raising money it seems so risky compared to to other startup right, financing right. no this yeah. is a great work? question yeah. this is a great question and there's different ways yeah uh one is of course the funding you know right. there's like, like the, just raising investments, just raising, uh, investments and, and and doing that uh, now what uh, a lot of these labs do is they have a diagnostics arm because you know they've paid for all of these uh, instrumentation might mm. as well put it to use mm. so they will have a service arm and they will have their research arm so they generate the, revenue yes by and, and it becomes like a self-feeding uh, pipeline um, so that's a very common practice these days so the yeah. diagnostic side will finance the research. Exactly. Yeah, they will kind of have like a core lab. Yeah, yeah. It's called core. And, you know, they have those HPLCs and, and, yeah. and mass packs. And, you know, they've paid all millions of dollars to get this in. Might as well start doing some of this uh, diagnostics for other companies. Um, and charge and, them for and, and, Yeah, and charge them for it. So, so that's it. a very common thing yeah. that, that labs do these days. Right. Okay, let's get to Armenia. How do you evaluate the Armenian biotech scene? We have a few startups now. Uh, what's missing? What could be what could be done to accelerate the growth of biotech here in Armenia? Sure, sure. So first, uh, I'd like to say that the biotech scene is almost inexistent uh, in, in Armenia. Yeah. However, it's ready to boom and, right. and, and and grow big, and there's already a lot of efforts uh, in that. And the reason why uh, it's not as mature is because uh, the country is poor and it does not, it cannot afford wet labs, basically, because wet labs is right from the beginning is, you know, five to $10 million for you to set it up. Mm. And uh, our universities don't have that kind of money. However, we don't have wet labs at any of our universities. No, we do, but it's, it's, it's very rudimentary. Right. Uh, we have amazing scientists, right. uh, theoretical scientists, uh, application scientists, and, and, and so on. So we have the talent, uh, but we do not have the funds to have a big operation and be able to, let's say, build a core lab here yeah. that can uh, get uh, customers from all the local countries right. like Georgia and, and uh, Persia or Iran or you know any of these other places. So um, because of that, um, um, we also have a strong, we've always had a strong physics background. We've right. had a strong engineering background. Um, you know, this was called kind of like the Silicon Valley of the region, right? right. Uh, during Soviet times, we, we, Armenia has developed a lot of great mathematicians. So now what we're seeing is that the, the math aspect of, of biotech, let's say, developing, and those are the AI folks. Right. Those are the people that are the data scientists and so on. And, and uh, a lot of these guys will either have a bio background or a chem background, uh, but they're not really hands-on scientists. They're more theoretical scientists because there hasn't been a lot of wet labs yeah. here. But now you combine the the mathematical background yeah. and the coding, 
Now you have these amazing talent here that's ready to take their knowledge and apply it to a wet lab. Right. So now um, the things that we're seeing that's happening is um, uh, they, we want to build some CROs in, in Armenia that will take data from U.S., from uh, Europe, from any of these uh, you know, rich countries yeah. that have the uh, the wet labs, right. but they do not have the ability, the time, or it's more cost-effective for them to outsource the data analysis to another country like Armenia, who has the talent and has the abilities. Right. So that's one thing that's developing is the, the data analysis portion of things. And then the other thing is developing because the, uh, you know we have a lot of great startups here um, on in, in all of the fields. We have a lot of uh, developers uh, and and so on. Now we're getting uh, biotech software uh, developers uh, like Modicus Prime that does image analysis. Um, and I think that's really the future here is uh, focusing on that, focusing on software because yeah. we have the talent. And then once these things get developed, then to close that uh, ecosystem, maybe there will be a wet lab arm that will support this. Right. Uh, but first, the, the funding and the money needs to come in. The clients right. need to develop. The names need to be uh, 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 kind of spoken of in the industry right. to build the credibility. And then I think it will naturally grow from there. And maybe those startups, as they grow and have more capital, they'd be the ones financing wet labs. Exactly, and and, and I think that's yeah. that's a healthy way to to go about it. Yeah. Uh, imagine uh, Monica's Prime uh, gets uh, you know a uh, hundred new uh, new clients. They get all this funding. Now they can go ahead and, and work with Olympus, Nikon, and uh, Zeiss, and and buy all of these expensive couple of hundred thousand dollar microscopes. Then you get the amazing scientists from the local universities who know how to uh, work these microscopes. And now you have the full uh, uh, pipeline here. The customers will send you their samples. Yeah. You will uh, get the images from it. You will analyze it and you will give the full report back to them. What's the, maybe this is a very hard question to answer, but what's the average uh, sort of initial financing needed to set up a proper wet lab? Um, I would say you can start with you know, two, three million dollars, uh, you can set up a pretty decent uh, yeah. wet lab. It really depends on what you're specializing in. You know, you don't have to have a, you know, a, a mass spec and an HPLC in a lab. It can be just uh, purely a basic microbiology lab. Yeah. And for that, you know, with some PCRs, uh, uh, you are able to provide the most common services right. that somebody would need. So, um, yeah, I think a couple of million dollars, you, you're able to set that up. Why do you, you, you want to set it up? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is, uh, so there's a lot of talk now about more government financing for science and, and R&D in Armenia. Uh, do you think it's a good idea or uh, to be putting the, some of that money that is going to be allocated into opening up wet labs and more wet labs in some of the universities or maybe private institutions? Or is it too early in the ecosystem? So I, th I think it should be all of the above again. Yeah. I think, you know, only focusing on one aspect, I think it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, similar so it's not to too like, early. A, yeah, it, yeah, it's not. I it, so yeah. I Fast Foundation, as right. you know, is working. Uh, they're creating the life science incubator space. There will be about four companies that are starting from there, 
And then if at the same time there's also, let's say, investment into the university lab and we build, you know, we build that and develop that. Yeah. And then maybe there's a CRO company that is just purely um, uh, only focused on the capitalistic nature of it and comes and, and, and builds some kind of a, a company out here. All of these things will start uh, uh, creating an ecosystem yeah. uh, and the, the competition will start kind of dictating the pace and, right. and, 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 and what's needed. Exactly. Yeah. And then there will be more and more people going into school for science uh, so they can be part of that ecosystem. Right. So I think all of these things at the same time can can happen right. or, and, and should happen. Yeah. Okay, let's get to some of the stuff you do for Armenia's startup ecosystem that is uh, not just limited to biotech. I know you do a lot of mentoring here. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how you got started doing that and what your what your approach is. I've been, you know, I, I did my master's in, in, in Harvard and, and I was lucky to have some really good teachers that they did workshops that were very animated and very interesting. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of my professors did was he came into the class with this big rope and he just started cutting the rope into pieces and giving it to every every student. And everyone was just thinking, what, what the hell is this guy right. doing? What is this? And then he told a story. He said, okay, imagine you are walking uh, on, on a bridge. Somebody gives you this piece of rope and then jumps off the bridge. Uh, and you notice that now the rope is around their waist right. and they're hanging. And now you have a choice to either pull them up or, or let them out. You try to pull them up. They don't. They're not uh, collaborating with you. They're not uh, working with you. You you say you want to drop. You will drop them. They say no. Don't do it. Uh, what are you doing in this uh, situation? And of course, this is a philosophical exercise, and, and we can talk about that for right. days. There was another workshop that he did um, that he came in <laughs> the next day. He came in with socks for right. everyone. He just passed out socks, uh -huh. and uh, again, we're like, okay, let's see what this is about. And it was about a, um, a, a coach, um, I think uh, they called him the shark, this was a basketball coach. Or, okay. uh, and um, they asked him what is the most important thing about uh, winning championships, and he said, your socks. They say, why? Because if your socks are not uh, high quality or if, if they're wet, if you don't take care of it, uh, you will have blisters, your, your feet will hurt. If your feet will hurt, you will not be able to run fast, jump fast, and you won't be able to win championships. And that's kind of the philosophy of uh, focusing on the details and making sure that everything is uh, in its best kind right. of uh, condition. Anyway, so these uh, uh, very live and animated workshops really uh, inspired me, and I realized how how you know this these are these two stories are going to be with me for the rest of my life and i wanted to take elements of of that and and being knowledgeable in 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 what i do and and, and successful at what i do um, i wanted to translate that into different kind of workshops and, and, and mentoring labs here uh, uh, companies startups. here startups here uh, for them to be uh, successful as well so that kind of started it you know they gave the spark and what I do usually is it's a, it's kind of like a, a brand workshop. Uh, the word brand, um, I don't I don't like the word brand because usually people just associate it with the logo and colors. When I talk about brand, I'm talking about your essence. Uh, I believe every person has a brand um, and some things are just unexplainable you just assume that this person is this because of how they carry themselves right. how they speak and, and and how they dress and and, and what kind of language they use etc 
So in this little workshop that we do, it's usually kind of like a two-hour in-depth uh, questioning of why are you doing what you're doing? Who are you? Why are you even doing this? Uh, what, is, what is special about your, uh, your company? Uh, what is not special about it? Uh, who are your competitors? And it also it almost becomes like a psychoanalysis of the company right. and the founder and, and their approach to it. Uh, you know, are you here just to end up in Silicon Valley and make right. millions of dollars? Are you, or are you here to change the world for the better? These are the kind of things that, we, that I focus on. And at the end of it, uh, I give them usually a two, three page report on very specific things that I think they should work on. Maybe it's their pitch, you know, the story needs to develop. Hey, for the first three minutes, uh, you need to focus on this, the next 10 minutes on that. And, you know, I get extremely detailed on, on what I think should be done. It, uh, it's, my opinion is not the golden rule. Uh, it's just meant to uh, challenge and, and provide a different perspective yeah. and in the process help them to develop uh, an infrastructure for their company uh, as far as, okay, how many people should you hire in the next six months yeah. in, in which fields? Uh, what kind of sectors of the industry should you, should you focus on if you're trying to do market entry in US versus in Europe? What kind of language should you use in your marketing if you're selling in Germany versus in, in Canada. These things are very uh, different from country to country. And this is not just something that I'm doing with, with companies in Armenia, but this is an internal thing at our company that we're doing as well uh, because different cultures and in different ecosystems demand different language and, and, and different approach. And, and it's important to, to notice those things and, and take advantage of that. And most importantly, do it with passion yeah. and, and love. Because if that's not there, then yeah. this is at least my opinion. If, you do, if you're not passionate about your product, uh, you will never be able to be successful with it, regardless of how cool the, yeah. the technology is. It would also make it harder to accept that feedback in a positive way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so you come from a very mature startup ecosystem, Boston, um, and just the U.S. in general. From a cultural perspective, what are some of the key things that Boston and the U.S. have learned over decades that we haven't yet learned here and we really need to export and bring that here? Sure. I think there's a couple of things. One of them, I think, in, in Armenia, because we've had several unicorns, uh, people are very attracted to that. It's it's either all or nothing. Yeah. We either going to be a you know ten billion dollar company or, bust, or yeah. nothing. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of companies out there that right. make a couple of million dollars a year and they're very happy and they're very successful. In order to uh, be a couple of million dollar company, you need to build a method to your business, you need to build an infrastructure. And these are the things that might not be fun for, for yeah. founders because it takes work, it takes a lot of meetings, it takes a lot of training yeah. and development. And you know, uh, there might be a couple of years of no funding, then yeah. you get a fund, etc. cetera. And it, it's, it's pain in the ass. However, if you stick with it, uh, you can have a very successful company that maybe is not a unicorn right now, but maybe 10 years from now, it will be a couple of hundred uh, com you know, person yeah. company and you'll be making uh, a lot of money. So I think in, in US in particular in Boston, uh, people are perfectly fine with that because they understand the nature of things and yeah. not everybody's going for that big uh, uh, kind of uh, thing. And I, and I think this is the influence or the 
maybe the word propaganda is wrong, but it's the influence of Silicon Valley on, is, the, rest it, the, on the rest of the world that it's either this and everything else does not matter. Right. But that's really not the case. Because we only hear about the unicorns. I, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, maybe if we bring a different example uh, in, let's say, I don't know, Nike versus uh, some amazing shoe store in, uh, I don't know, in Netherlands that... Uh, has a very happy owner, a very yeah. happy, you know, factory, and then and they're doing great job in, yeah. in providing shoes for people, and there's a market for it. Yeah. I like to say there's enough food for, for everyone. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be in that the same... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's one of the things that I, I think needs to, uh, culturally needs to, needs to shift. Um, another thing is, you know, I noticed this in, specifically in biotech companies in Boston and then the startups seen over here. In, in biotech, seen in, in, in Boston, this is with regards to the scientists. Scientists can move around from you know, Dana-Farber to mm. Harvard Medical School to MSK and, and, and so on because the competition is high and right. they're scientists and they're very good at what they do. They specialize in that and they will just move around to whoever gives them more money and, yeah. and, and so on. Same thing is happening here in uh, in Armenia as far as the developers go. You know, uh, they will jump around from company to company uh, if they provide them with just even a little bit more money. And it is good for the individual because, you know, they're, they're thinking about, well, this extra money, I'll be able to get more things for my child. I will be able to do this, et cetera. And it's a very human thing to do. But if you are part of a startup and not a big company, you, you yeah. also want to think about, how you how you are perceived in the industry you want to think about how you are building yourself in your career yeah you want to think about okay uh, maybe i won't make x amount more for the next three years but because i'm one of the first five people within this company i will be able to get percentage i will be able yeah. to get this and that and at least i'll be able to develop uh, my name as one of the originals within this yeah. company who became successful so that's that's another cultural shift that I think would be a healthy thing for for Armenia for the Armenian developers is to just be more committed to yeah. the company that they're with and this goes back to what I'm saying is being passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, ones and zeros and coding. It's okay, what is this company doing? Yeah. Do you believe in what they're doing and do you think you can have positive change on yourself, on your country, on on the, you know, other countries and, and and on society at large? If that is missing, I think uh, um, you know, you you are bound to move around and just always be unhappy and always chase yeah. uh, you know, monetary success rather than more a success that that's bigger than yourself i think that problem will be fixed and maybe it's not from a passion perspective but it'll be fixed as soon as the first armenian startup exits right. uh, and a lot of people become b very wealthy overnight and it'll be the people who stuck around for the full vesting period and got all their stock options and and then when that exit happened they made a fair amount of money but until then there's still often when i speak with founders i, I hear that there's still a sort of like hesitancy towards taking equity and taking stock options because that culture wasn't really here before before right. that and some some people feel like no like screw the stock options like just pay me more right but, what uh, about now i don't about, care yeah, about exactly. the future yeah well, who knows what's going to happen in the future but right but once that first exit happens i think people are going to understand the value of equity very very quickly right yeah. are there are there any companies right now that uh, are kind of almost exiting that you know of or so in terms of uh, Armenian startups that will probably be the first ones to exit or are on the cusp of exiting. Um, in the news earlier this year was Service Titan. 
who had reportedly filed for an IPO. Um, Service Titan is one of the biggest tech companies that operate in Armenia. Uh, they're based out of Glendale, California. And I have no doubt that they will exit at some point. Uh, but given the current state of the markets, especially for tech stocks, I think it's possible that a lot of IPOs will be getting pushed back and delayed. So I have no idea uh, what Service Titan is planning. I have no uh, insider knowledge of that. But I think a lot of tech IPOs are going to get delayed, and maybe it's possible that Service Titans will as well. Um, but we will have to just wait and see. I've been to their um, their offices, yeah. and, and, and they're doing amazing work. And I know that all of the uh, employees of Service Titan are, are, are doing great work. And, and uh, just related to exits and, and so on, I'll give you an example of another uh, company that shall remain nameless and uh, people who are in the biotech scene i'm sure they they will know who i'm talking about uh, but the one thing that they have done is so they got 200 million dollar funding every other year or something like that now they're evaluated at uh, six billion we know that they are now uh filing uh getting ready to file to to exit but one thing that has happened is they hired about thousand people in in like a year or two and we know that their customers are very unhappy with them because nobody knows the product all the way yeah because they're hiring so many people they're focusing on more on the perception yeah than the real value that they bring to society yeah and uh, i think this is a very common like a silicon valley problem is you just you go ahead and hire, 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 funding, 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 market, you know, use most of the money that you got from funding on marketing yeah. and, and make it seem like you are the coolest and the best thing yeah. in the world. But then when you try to use the product, it's really uh, either the product is underdeveloped yeah. or if the product is very developed, the people that are supposed to give you customer support, they can't. Right. You know, yeah. stories that we hear of this company is yeah, people, uh, you know, uh, send a question and they say, oh, this is part of this module. Let me bring this specialist in. That specialist comes in and then you say, okay, but what about this? Then they bring another specialist in. Next thing you know, there's 10 different people in this email chain and nobody knows the answer to the question that you're asking. Yeah. And I think this is uh, a common problem in, in, in the industry is that uh, perception versus reality. Yeah. Real value versus what you're marketing is providing and these things are directly correlated with short-term success and yeah. long-term success are you here to bring to to build a company that's going to be here 50 years from now or are you here to do something in a couple of years make a lot of money uh, exit and, yeah. and that's it yeah and uh, i think that people don't think too deep in, into these things uh, yeah uh, they're more focused on like the day-to-day -day grind and that's yeah. understandable it's, they're kind of optimizing for the wrong kpis right like, Number of employees is not a strong is not something to be optimizing for. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that your company is doing as well as it might seem like it's doing. Right. Yeah. Right. I kind of thought that problem might be going away with the advent of like 10, 15 years ago. Let's say fifteen. Social startups were all anybody really did, uh, and it was super easy to get off the ground. That's why you had so many college dropouts starting companies mm -hmm. and things. Nowadays, I feel like the startups that we hear about, the most prominent startups, the ones that get financing, the ones that grow, are these deep tech startups, startups that are built on some proprietary IP that was done through significant scientific research or real R&D work. 
And that's not easy to replicate. Um, and it's also not easy to get started in that space. And I thought that would filter out a lot of that hype and bullshit. Mm. Um, but do you think that even in the biotech scene, which is purely deep tech, there's still a lot of that? Um, I think I think there's definitely still a, a lot of that yeah. because it's part of the system right, it's part yeah. of the ecosystem so you can't help but uh, but have that yeah. so far i know i can talk about our our competitors a bit first of all i want to thank the competitors because they make our product better right and uh you know uh, let's say five years ago we had let's say 10 competitors now we have 85 uh, now the question is how much of these 85 are, are BS and how much of them are, you know, legit. Some of them are legit on very specific features, others on, on others. But I would say now we've narrowed it down to, let's say, five that we pay attention to. Yeah. The rest, uh, they're not even close. And a lot of these um, are fluffy uh, companies because they they found this niche they realized yeah. that there is something in here and then they just went ahead and, and created uh, right. some software that will compete and they have you know small market share you know you know x you know 1.1 percent or something like that and for them that's enough and right. you know they make their money and, and and they move on but others are are very focused on being acquired by other larger companies um, uh, to be in that space. There has been a lot of big uh, biotech companies that developed their own software. So they were providing centrifuges and, uh, you know, things like that. And they just developed their own software just to compete yeah. uh, and be able to use their own equipment. Uh, the problem with that is that they were not agnostic. They became... Um, you know, you have to use their product and their software or else, you, you know, you can't use it and it becomes very proprietary and right. not, not easy to scale. So, um, uh, yes, uh, we, we notice uh, fluff in the industry, uh, but those original 10 that were our competitors five years ago that narrowed down into yeah. into five. And, and, and from five, there's usually two or three that are always ending up in, in the, on the competing table. Right. So what happens is these large institutions will put, put up a RFP, a request for purchase, and they will uh, create a committee. Internally, we call them a DMU, decision-making unit. And this committee will um, make a large list of their requirements. Right. These are IT requirements. These are functional requirements. So they will have end users. They will have IT. They will have directors of research all having their pain points just, you know, thrown a piece yeah. of paper. I mean, including like dreams, you know, I would like to be able to press a button and it does all of the science for me, right. you know, like to that level, <laughs> you know, I make a joke. I said, do you want this software to also order pizza and right. coffee for you? You know, um, that might so, be more doable. <laughs> right. Um, so, so they, they create yeah. these, uh, large, um, RFPs and then they, they put it out. Uh, to make it also a non-biased decision because, hey, I might be friends with, uh, you know, AstraZeneca uh, a guy and, and he said, hey, my friend has a company, let's go. And it's not fair. It needs to be something that um, uh, benefits everyone and everybody right. likes it. Um, these RFPs get put out and usually it ends up being us, uh, Benchling and, and Lab Guru, so Elab Next Benchling and Lab Guru. Uh, and then and then everybody else. Yeah. Um, and then it goes through this evaluation where we give a demo, we give them you know, all these different papers, um, and it can be the sales cycle can be anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of years. Mm -hmm. The longest sales cycle I've had was two years. Hmm. Can you believe it? Hmm. 
Um, and during that time, it's like every month you would go in and you would speak with a different department and you, you will pitch, you will, you will show your product. Uh, you, uh, you know, they will say, wait, you know what? We don't like this feature. Uh, can you change it? And, and then you go into the drawing board and say, you know what? Maybe we need to be agile and yeah. we need to change our product a bit. And it becomes this collaboration uh, with that organization. That's how I look at it. Right. Um, and um, in the end... Um, you know, for the most part, we end up uh, uh, beating our, our, our competition, uh, honestly. The only times that we don't, if uh, they want very something very niche and very specific, that, 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 that they specialize right. in. Got right. it. Yeah, so uh, one of the ways that we differentiated us in, in the industry is that um, we created a marketplace, kind of like an app store. And this app store houses a bunch of different products. Um, that uh, we don't want to reinvent the wheel on and, and build it in-house because there's other companies that do them and they and do them very well. So uh, we were able to create this platform where these third-party uh, companies can come in, work with us, and, and understand what is the value that they can bring to our customers and uh, build that uh, uh, using our API and SDK, our software development kit. So, and, and that's the reason initially when I was saying that we are a digital lab platform rather than just a tool is because of this reason. And... Um, one thing that um, I would uh, I would love to for the listeners who are in this space to to know is that we're very open to working with these kind of startups uh, that have an amazing tool for the biotech scene, um, and uh, we will be able to integrate them into our uh, into our program, and they will be able to be presented to thousands of users that we have around the world. I mean, to give you an idea, uh, one of our accounts, just one account that we have, has three thousand users uh, uh, alone. So and we have thousands of accounts. So their benefit would be for them to be presented to to the world and, and kind of have a accelerated market entry where they don't have to you know call cold call and, and do all that fun stuff. Uh, and our benefit is that we get to say, hey, look all these amazing tools that we have. So it's really a win-win solution. And um, uh, this is how we differentiated us in the industry. And, and, and I hope that any of the listeners that are part of the, the, the scene and, and have these tools um, uh, can reach out and, and, and work with us on that. Okay, Zaire, let's get to our last question. Sure. Uh, where do you hope to see both for yourself and your career at eLab next, uh, or at eLab, sorry, mm -hmm. Uh, but also for Armenia's biotech scene, where do you hope to see all this in the next five to sure, ten years? Sure. So uh, with Elab Next, so uh, currently I'm I'm the head of uh, of Elab Next Americas, so that's uh, U.S., uh, Canada, and in Latin America. Right now we have a couple of offices in in, in Boston, and uh, we're working on opening up more offices in in the in the West Coast, in Canada. Uh, Latin America is an untapped uh, kind of market. We're getting more and more people from there, uh, uh, and more research labs opening up, which is very good to see, especially research on agriculture and, and animals uh, for obvious reasons. So, uh, you know, for the next five to 10 years is really developing all of these sectors. Yeah. And uh, kind of to, to transition to the second part of the question, um, there's a lot of amazing talent here in, in, in Armenia. 
Um, and um, from a business and capitalistic perspective, it makes sense for us to to hire people from here because we're paying less and right. getting higher quality um, uh, than, than than other parts of the world. So um, I would like to be able to uh, hire more people from here. Uh, these would be developers. These would be um, even you know graphic designers and, yeah. and, and marketing and, and and so on. So any operational folks uh, that are uh, highly uh, qualified we'd love to tap into that uh, and maybe uh, one day we'll be able to uh, have enough people from here that will open up an office here as well uh, that's really just an excuse for me to be able to come back and have Sorry, more kebabs more. here and, and <laughs> so um, uh, that's the only reason right. I want that <laughs> Um, so How can people reach out to you if they if they want? Sure. To? So um, uh, you guys can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search Zare Zurabian, Z A R E H Z U R A B Y A N, um, and I'm sure those will be written on the podcast. Yes, right. It will okay, be. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe we can put on my email in there as well, sure. and, and people can reach out and. Um, uh, whether uh, you guys want uh, mentorship, whether you want to just talk, whether you uh, want to integrate your uh, product uh, into our software, uh, these are all things that I'd be more than happy to discuss with uh, with anyone from here. Awesome. Zarajan, thank you so much for your time thank today. You. It was a really interesting conversation. This was great. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye.